Welcome to the final episode of season one of Napava Coffee House. It has been such a great pleasure and an honor to work on Napava Coffee House over the course of this semester. I mean, what an absolute privilege to have had a front row seat to learn from the legendary Larry Tu and all of our GC guests. And so from the bottom of my heart, a big thank you to everyone who's made this happen. So a big thank you to our host, Larry, to all our guests, um, Lola, John, Marie, uh, Alan, Dawn, uh, Sam, Sandy, uh, Caroline, and Amy. A big thank you to Wilson Chu and the uh, Napava In-House Council Network. A big thank you to Kenneth, our video editor. A big thank you to uh, Professor Wilkins, Brian, and Dana at the Harvard Law School Center on the Legal Profession. Uh, thanks to Napava, to our sponsors, and most importantly, uh, to you, to our audience. Thank you for taking the time to watch Napava Coffee House and for giving us uh, your support. We wanted to create Napava Coffee House because we wanted to celebrate an amazing group of Asian American trailblazers and also because we wanted um, to create a free, publicly available resource with insights and advice for the law students and the lawyers who are coming up after them. And I think that together, we've all created uh, a project that we can all be proud of. So thank you, everyone. Uh, teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> all right, so final episode for season one. Today's guest is Amy Tu. Chief Legal Officer at Tyson Foods, one of the world's largest food companies. Its segments include beef, chicken, pork, and prepared foods. Uh, prior to joining Tyson Foods in 2017, Amy was at The Boeing Company, where she held leadership positions in law, uh, corporate development, and strategy. Amy also held in-house roles at The Gap and Walmart. Um, so if you'll allow me to make a dad joke, um, we've always described Napaba Coffee House as a series of one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading general counsels. Well, today, for the first time ever, with Larry Two and Amy Two, we'll have a two-on-two -two conversation. All right, without further ado, here's Larry and Amy. Let me start by welcoming you, Amy, to the Napaba Coffee House. Uh, we really appreciate your taking the time to do this with us. You have recently stepped up to a greatly expanded senior business and legal role at Tyson Foods, so your plate must be extremely full right now. Um, I should add that although this session could be dubbed two on two, we are in fact not related. <laughs> Our family names are actually different in Chinese. And indeed, you and I only met for the first time on Zoom to prepare for this session. So I am very much looking forward to learning more about you and your personal and professional journey. And I want to say a big thank you for making time for us today. Well, thank you, Larry. And I must say that even though we're not related, I feel like we're related because I have been following you since your GC position at Dell. <laughs> and I always wondered whether or not we were related uh, or whether you could give me a job. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, with that. So let's start at the beginning, as we always do. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal and family history, how your parents came to uh, immigrate into North America, and how you started your early life. Sure. Um, well, my parents are originally from China, um, the Hubei province in Hebei. And um, my parents met in Canada. Uh, and um, the story is, 
that my dad was uh, working and studying um, in Nova Scotia. And through family connections, uh, he met my mother, um, who also went to Canada, but just to be a teacher, actually. And um, they met in Halifax. Uh, and then uh, they ended up uh, moving to Cal Calgary, Canada, uh, and where I was born. And, um, you know, they tell me all the time how much they enjoy traveling in their little blue Volkswagen Beetle <laughs> across the Canadian hinterlands. And um, so we stayed in uh, Canada for a couple of years. And then my parents moved to Arkansas, uh, where my father had University of Arkansas to start their um, economics program, their mathematical component of the uh, economics program at the university. Um, and so uh, I grew up actually not far from the headquarters of Tyson Foods. I grew up in Fayetteville, Arkansas, uh, and um, really, uh, you know, had a had an interesting uh, childhood until high school. Um, and but you know, I think as a Chinese family, uh, one of the very few Chinese families in Northwest Arkansas, um, it was just a different time. Um, it was the uh, early seventies. And, uh, you know, I never really felt, um, never felt different. Uh, the community has always been very, very supportive, but as you know, as you get older and you're connect reconnecting with your parents and talking about, uh, what happened in the early years, um, you know, you learn more and more about perhaps the challenges they had to overcome uh, while living in, in the South um, and being one of the very few Chinese families. But um, that, that's the long and short of it. Uh, oh, I Amy, I, 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 I'm a huge fan and I'm an addict of Chinese food. And I know that we talked about the fact that when you grew up in Arkansas, there might have been one Chinese restaurant in the entire city. That's right. Uh, it was called something like the egg roll or something. Yeah, like it was that. called the right? Yeah. <laughs> so so and, and there might have been one other Asian family mm -hmm. uh, with a son you know, who was a classmate. He was a classmate of mine and everybody yeah. thought we would get married because we were both Chinese. <laughs> And, and the 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 funny thing is that um you know uh he grew up in this in the same neighborhood that I grew up in and um he became a doctor uh which his family is very very proud of and which my family is very proud of um but we 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 ran around in the same circles together uh, very you know studious but also interested was, in was that was that a circle of two <laughs> just you and him <laughs> No, no, no. Uh, we had a circle of diverse friends. Uh, but, you know, the funny thing is that um, when I returned to Arkansas to take on this position, um, I found out that he was living in my neighborhood, the neighborhood that I bought a house in. And so um, isn't that isn't that hilarious? But yeah, what a small world. What a small world. <laughs> now, uh, you know, gr growing up in that town uh, back then with very few other Asian families around, uh, you, you said you didn't feel that different, but you must have felt the difference to some degree. Um, I think you were telling me the other day that your mom would occasionally say to you something like, and I love the statement, why don't you invite your friends over for some soy sauce chicken legs? So tell me how that went over with your friends. <laughs> like a lead balloon. <laughs> I still remember my my best friend, Courtney. Um, she, um, you know, she grew up in Arkansas and Oklahoma and um, we were on the pom-pom squat together and 
she, you know, we would, our, our families would trade off um, taking us to ball games. And so one day I said, hey, Courtney, why don't you come over? My mom is making chicken legs. You'll love them. And she said, what? <laughs> what do you mean chicken legs? And um, she came over and she just looked at these chicken legs that my mother was putting on her plate, like one after another. And she said, I, uh, I don't really understand what this is because there was soy sauce just covering the, the chicken legs. And she had never... She had never really eaten it before. I'd never seen a, a chicken let that wasn't fried. Uh, See, so you you were you were pushing diversity from an early age, diversity and, and culinary experiences. Great way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> so from there off to college to Wellesley, where um, I think you were at Wellesley and you were also in the ROTC program. Right. So you might have been one of a handful of Wellesley students, uh, you know, with, with both of those activities. And that must have felt a little bit um you must have a little, a little bit of an outlier there because of that. Yeah, I, I guess um, what I, I also would, would say is um, the reason I went to Wellesley was because of Hillary Clinton. Um, she mm. was the first lady uh, during the um, during uh, Bill Clinton's tenure as governor at, in the state of Arkansas. And uh, she's one of the reasons why I ended up uh, at Wellesley. But, um, you know, I think I wasn't really prepared for what Wellesley was going to offer. Uh, which was, you know, as we all know, an aggressive and and um, tough curriculum. But with uh, my Air Force ROTC scholarship, I also had to enroll in the ROTC program, so it's the military program. And uh, it was it was not easy because I was um, at a women's liberal arts college during a period of time in the world where the military was seen as um, really the you know not in the not in the best light uh and um i had to travel uh taking the college bus to um mit to cambridge where um you know fellow rotc scholarship uh, uh recipients were where we took our classes uh so there were there were um, students from harvard and boston college boston university mit wellesley and, um, you know, we were, you know, on the weekends, uh, once a week in the evenings, we would be studying, we would be mm. running our drills. Um, so, you know, I think it, it wasn't easy because during that period of time, there really was um, quite a bit of, of pushback on the military and yeah. um, being a liberal arts school that <clears throat> Wellesley is, uh, you know, it, I, I faced a little bit of uh, controversy um, because right. I was wearing my my cadet uniform around uh, around the college, um, but not not overt. Just it was a matter of you know women taking positions uh, against the military, and, yeah. and uh, you just had to you just had to deal with it. So, so Rossi was a way to play for college, but also, yeah. as I understand it, you had thoughts of becoming a pilot. Yes. So, yeah. so tell me about, was it like, were you going to be an, uh, like a fighter pilot or what, what did you have in mind? Well, at that time, women were not allowed to be fighter pilots. They were um, pilots for transport, really cargo and transport. And I've always loved flying. I've always loved the thrill of travel. Um, but, you know, to serve my country and, and to do so in the Air Force as a pilot was um, really exciting to me. Um, but as part of the, you know, 
part of the requirements uh, for uh, becoming a pilot in the Air Force, you actually have to meet a certain threshold with your eyesight. And I guess I read too many books in the dark, <laughs> not qualified. So, so my dream. So there, there went that career. Yeah. My dreams were shattered, but I ended up at Boeing later on. So I feel like I'm, it was great. <laughs> Now, after college, you went on to several to a, a couple of business jobs yes. uh, in business and finance, and I think you were headed maybe toward an MBA at that point in your life. So, uh, so that's clearly been a being a business person and a business executive has always been part of your your thoughts about your future career. Yeah, I um I ended up majoring in economics at Wellesley, and uh, one of my favorite classes was financial markets and. Um, uh, as well as macroeconomics. I even have this character caricature that my friends put together that had me and with a big face and a suit on and said Wall Street in the back and just said, you know, next CEO. <laughs> and, uh, but it's just because I, I really um, enjoy, you know, when you find a class or you find something you really love, you just you immerse yourself in it. So I was lucky enough to... Um, uh, to, to have a, a position with Merrill Lynch, which is um, uh, no longer Merrill Lynch, but uh, Merrill Lynch down on Wall Street, uh, the World Financial Center. And it was one of those two to three year analyst programs in, in investment banking. Um, my specialty was high yield bonds, uh, junk bonds, as it was called at the time. Um, and it, we were just hitting the, the peak of junk bonds. And you may remember that Drexel um, sort of collapsed, imploded, and all of a sudden it became um, the restructuring group. So we went from being high yield uh, junk bonds to restructuring. And so um, I worked on a lot of the reorganizations that companies were, were faced with as a result of the junk bond market collapsing. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. I wanted to go to business school. Uh, and um, at the time, there was just really a, an oversupply of investment bankers who were applying to business school. And uh, one of my friends uh, said, you know, your best chances for getting into one of the schools that you wanted to attend was to have a different experience in business. So um, I had a friend who worked at Saks Fifth Avenue in the corporate department. She was a buyer for men's apparel. And she said, hey, well, if you're interested, there, I know there's a position open in the cosmetics group. And so I um, interviewed for a position with Saks and um, I was lucky enough to get that job. Uh, so I became uh, a buyer for cosmetics. So Chanel, I think at the time, Estee Lauder, Givenchy, it was cosmetics and perfumes. And what was really interesting to me was the fact that if you think about cosmetics, cosmetics is really different from fashion because fashion works on, on trends uh, according to the seasons. And cosmetics is actually a financial business. Mm. So a lot of what I learned at Merrill Lynch was uh, easily translated to um, the buying department for Ford Cosmetics. Yeah. There's a couple things I did after, after college. And then you took a break and decided that you would go work on a political campaign, right? right. You, went, you went home. Right. Yeah. Part of my plan, part of my plan was to to um, go to business school. I spent a year at Saks, 
And um, one of the reasons why I decided to go back to, to go home, to go to Arkansas, was because Bill Clinton had announced his, his uh, candidacy for president. And this is the first, first round. And um, I said, well, this is terrific. I love politics as well. I want to support the Clintons. Uh, and so I'll go home. I'll live at home. I'll work on my applications. And it'll just be terrific. And I'm sure your, your parents were thrilled to have you back in the house and they vice versa, right? They were so thrilled <laughs> to have, you know, a New Yorker, 20 some odd year old at home in Arkansas. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I think it, it was really one of those growing moments where, you know, your, your, you and your parents are at different stages of your, your lives. Hmm. And uh, my parents, uh, I remember that my dad distinctly saying, uh, Amy, you're not making any money. You're working on some political thing that is never going to make you any money. And, um, you know, you're, you're working on these applications for business school that's going to cost another, I think at the time, $100,000. And, um, you know, I think that constant ringing in my ears from my, from my dad and then my mom uh, saying to me was just, um, it, it got to the point where my mother said, why don't you just, why don't you just go to law school? If you don't want to be a doctor, you don't, don't, you know, you, you're working on these applications. Why don't you, why don't you look at law school? <laughs> that was, it was parental pressure. So, so your, your law school path was as fortuitous as that. It wasn't really necessarily all that premeditated. I will have to say, I'll, I'll be very <laughs> honest, Larry. I did not like LA Law. I did not like, mm. I did not like any of those shows. Um, so you didn't want, you were, you, you were not an aspiring female Arnie Becker, right? This is not your role model. No, no. I, I was more of, you know, barbarians at the gate. Um, but, um, you know, I think, because my mom had made the suggestion and my, my parents were, you know, of the opinion that I was um, not spending my time wisely. Uh, you know, I did, I did explore the legal profession and mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time talking to, um, uh, you know, people who uh, were political in political positions. Uh, I spoke to a lot of judges um, I spoke to a lot of lawyers and, and here's the one thing that I learned from all of the, the, the uh, interviews and discussions I had, um, they all said to me, Amy, the best thing you could do is actually to go to law school. And the reason why is because law school will teach you a way of thinking. You know, it, it's based on uh, logic. It's there, there are rules. Um, it will help you no matter what you do. If you decide to go back to business school or go back into business, um, having a law degree and having that training um, will be invaluable. Yep. And, the, you know, I think those comments were re really resonated with me to think of it not as becoming a lawyer, but think of it as an education uh, and a way of thinking. Yeah. Um, and I credit I credit my mother and my father, of course, for my my career, but also for all the people who I spoke with about attending law school. Well, you credit them now. Maybe you didn't you didn't credit them at the time when they were oh, putting yeah, pressure I, on you. Yeah. <laughs> I was. Uh, yeah, there was like a, a secret box that I kept with all my <laughs> comments about them. <laughs> 
So let's talk about your legal career, which is uh, you've you've done an amazing variety of roles. Um, you've been with one company for a very long time, but the one thing you haven't done is work for a law firm because uh, you went really straight from law school into an in-house position at Walmart. Yeah. So was that a deliberate decision to not go to a law firm or did it just happen that way? It wasn't necessarily planned. Um, I think a couple of things. One is uh, when I was um, in law school, I actually worked for a law firm. So I, I did need to, um, uh, you know, just earn earn some extra money. And right. so I worked um, about two and a half years for a law firm. Um, now, you know, when I was exploring my career options, um, I had just, you know, I, I had one, you know, one assignment that I really enjoyed, and that was working with a federal judge. So I was working for the chief judge of the Western District at the time, Judge Waters, uh, who I loved dearly. He taught me so much about, um, you know, being a judge and, um, you know, really gave me an experience where I could feel the the gravity, you know, of um, particular situations. The fact that a judge has so much influence mm. over people and decisions. And um, I wanted to I wanted to be a clerk uh, after law school, and so I began to explore that um, avenue. Uh, and he had. You know, he had already hired someone um, uh, from another school to be his clerk. And, and so he did not have a position available for me. So I, I started to explore that, you know, that path. Um, I, knew I, did, I knew that I didn't, I, didn't, I really didn't want to work for a law firm. I, I thought I was going to return to business. And, you know, I think as a matter of just uh, making sure I had some you know, some insurance policies. I did apply to a few jobs. I mm -hmm. sent out my resumes to a few companies. And um, <laughs> I just still remember this. I sent, I sent a resume to Walmart for, I think it was like a tort position and I'm horrible at tort. I mean, <laughs> tell you, she's a disaster. And I received a phone call from the general counsel at the time because he has seen my resume and he mm. said, uh, Amy, this is Robert Rhodes. I'm the general counsel of Walmart. Um, and I said, oh, I, I said, hello. And he said, look, I, I saw your resume for some position and um, just, you know, I'm impressed because you had this business experience. And he said, I just have one question for you. You know, what, what would you do if you could have any job in the world? And I said, I would love to practice international law somehow. And he said, we, I want you to come down and visit with me because we have um, a position open in, for international because they were just starting their expansion internationally. Uh, and, and so the reason why I said international is I just came off of a, a fantastic course um, on, on comparative law. And so I was, I was, you know, we were talking about trying to, Law in China, law in, the, in uh, what is now known as the European Union, uh, and then uh, compared against the United States legal system. And <laughs> so I, I went to I went to interview with him, and I got I got the job. So it's I know it's very very atypical um, in the traditional way of thinking about lawyers and lawyers' career paths, but 
Um, he saw the sort of the business experience as an asset. You know, he knew that I was a baby lawyer, you know, first year out, but had tremendous experience working in New York in different settings. And, uh, you know, I think part of being a business lawyer, a really good business lawyer is being able to show up uh, in front of your clients in a way that gives them confidence um, and also uh, in a way where you're candid uh, that if you do not know the answer to something, you say, I don't know the answers to that, but let me get back to you, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so you had the unusual experience of actually creating, designing your very first legal job. I suppose, I suppose that's yeah. I got it. Which is, which, is pretty, which is pretty unusual, right? Yeah, it is. I had some luck, I, I guess, yeah. too. So, um, and your business background clearly served you well, although perhaps you didn't even know it at the time, but it actually ended up being a huge plus in terms of how you were viewed by the Walmart general counsel. Yeah, yeah. I, look, I, I, I mean, you, you've worked in, with corporations uh, for you know, a long time. And I, I think what really distinguishes lawyers uh, really good lawyers from lawyers is the fact that you understand business, uh, you know, that you're solutions oriented, that you can, you know, chart, chart a path for the business, uh, that you can understand risks to the business, uh, and you can read a balance sheet and an income statement, understand cash flows. Uh, you know, I, I think that was um, those fundamentals I learned on Wall Street have served me time and time again. Yeah, really perfect. Well. Now, from there, you went on to a job at Gap, which didn't last that long. No. So they ended up being, perhaps in hindsight, not a great move, but you probably learned something from that. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, look, um, I don't know if I would say it's a great move or not a great move. I think these are all just you know experiences that, that yep. shape a person. Um, I uh, left Walmart because I really wanted to, to, um, I wanted to leave Arkansas. Um, because I, I wanted to continue to have experiences. I, I, I knew that if I stayed at Walmart, I, I would likely stay here for a very long time. Uh, and I, um, you know, through my network of connections, I had a friend, uh, Michelle Banks, who went on to become the GC of, of the Gap. And I reached out to her when I was exploring um, possibilities to, um, you know, get more experience, have more experiences um, in the legal profession. And she said, you know what, I have a position, um, coming up. We have a position coming open here at the gap, uh, transactions. Cause that was my background, uh, M and a corporate finance transactions. She said, we have an opening we're expanding internationally. Um, would love to have you, you know, interview with us and then potentially join us. Um, so, I joined the Gap um, based in San Francisco. And uh, um, I really, you know, I, as a consumer, love the Gap. You know, I loved the jeans. I love Banana Republic. I loved Old Navy. And so I really connected with the product, which I think is important mm. um, when you're going in-house. Um, but what I had, I struggled with was the culture. Um, it was very different from Walmart. Uh, you know, it was a culture that was, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't what I was accustomed to, right? I mean, I think working on Wall Street, working at Walmart, you're pretty buttoned up. Um, you know, you're wearing a jacket or you're wearing a suit and, um, 
kid at, at the gap, it's just a whole, it's a whole different world. It's everyone's in their khakis and their flip-flops and their hoodies. And, and that's rightly so, right? Those are the products that they make. But I was just having a really hard time shifting from like my, my jacket that I bought at Talbot's or a gap <laughs> at, like trying to button down <laughs> and, right. And, uh, you know, frankly, a lot of the clients, the internal clients, um, were much younger than I was. And I, you know, I think I was in my thirties or something, but they were much younger. And that also was, that was different. Right. So I think adjust, it was a hard adjustment. And, but I mean, I loved, I loved my time there, but it was just a, a, a I think a transition that was difficult, uh, coming from such a, you know, a, a hardcore company that was focused on, you know, sort of uh, being buttoned up and being yeah. you know, organized and talking to you know, some very senior people about uh, issues that, that were not about, you know, sort of fashion and trends and IT and marketing. So it was just, it was an adjustment that was difficult. I mean, if you were giving advice to younger attorneys who are thinking about, you know, switching careers or switching mm-hmm. companies or whatever, um, and clearly, the question of fit and suitability and culture are really important things, which maybe they don't, they don't necessarily realize. So what advice would you give them based on your own experience? I mean, clearly, Gap's a great company. Yeah. You, I'm sure you learn a lot there, but somehow the fit wasn't just right. And so there's something to be taken from that experience. Yes, yes. And, I, and, and my advice would be do your homework uh, and then also self-reflection. Um, and I'm seeing this with some of our attorneys too. It, it's just, it may not be the right fit at that point in time in your life, right? Mm. I think you just have to really know what you want at that point in time. If you're 30 years old and you still love going out to restaurants and bars and, you know, you're, you're doing your TikTok and you're, you know, you're, you're hip and you love your fashion, um, Arkansas is probably not going to be the best place for you. That's all. I mean, just be very candid, right? Yeah. But, you know, I, I think that's important for you to know who you are at that point in time and understand the culture of the company that you may be accepting a position from, because the culture of that company also is going to be important in terms of whether or not it's something that you believe in, some something that you know, fits you, um, at that point in your life. Um, and it's, you know, it, it may not be the right fit for, for everyone, but you know, it's, I think it just takes a little bit of reflection. Yeah. So now from there, you went on to Boeing, uh, and maybe it was your aviation interest. I don't know how, how that came about, but you then had a fantastic, illustrious career at Boeing if I count the places you went to, Chicago, London, Seattle, Washington, D.C., Virginia, I mean, you went all over the world yes. doing a whole variety. It seems like each job you took was another stretch assignment from the one you did before, where you were learning new skills and new capabilities and not necessarily staying in your strike zone. You were actually branching out into new areas. So that was a sounds like a tremendous part of your career in terms of learning and growth. Yeah, I was really lucky. I um I received a call from a recruiter while I was working at the Gap, and um, I, I, you know, I was not really looking. I was, you know, trying to adjust. I was still adjusting to to the Gap, and um, when he he pitched Boeing to me, I I just said, oh my gosh, this is like it's going to be bureaucratic. You know, it's it, these are my biases, right? Slow. 
Um, what am I going to learn there? And uh, <laughs> so I, he said, just be open. So I went to visit the, um, at the time, the Seattle headquarters. And wow, you know, you just, I just couldn't believe the products. You were, you know, there were rocket scientists everywhere. The lawyers were working on um, really impactful uh, things for the company and for the nation. Uh, and so I was, I was so impressed that I said yes to the job. The funny thing was that Boeing had announced it was going to move its headquarters to one of three locations. And would I be comfortable at any three of the locations? Because <laughs> they had not yet decided. And uh, I said, yeah, sure. No problem. Chicago, Denver, or Dallas. And no problem. So you were you were completely flexible in terms completely of completely flexible, yeah. and I think sometimes you just you just gotta go with it. <laughs> and um, so we so the job was in Chicago uh, at the new headquarters, and um, you know I I was really lucky to work with some fantastic people. My job was really around again corporate security, finance, M and A. Um, subsidiary governance, and um, I was able to work on on some of the supporting documents for the board, and uh, it was um, it was it was wonderful. Uh, but it also you know what also happened was nine eleven, and I just remember where I was when I saw the first plane and then the second, and being with Boeing at the time, it was just it was a wake up call I think in terms of um, the importance of the company, but also the importance of life, right? And really, what do you want to do in life? And, um, you know, I, I, I loved being a lawyer, but I had an opportunity, um, you know, roll forward. I had an opportunity uh, uh, many months later to work for my client, my internal client. So to be, a, to be an M&A lead on the business side. Hmm. And um, I did that for... Um, a little while until my husband told me, uh, hey, my then boyfriend, hey, I'm headed to London. <laughs> and I said, I said, what? He, and he had, uh, he had an opportunity in London and he, um, he said, you're coming with me, right? And I said, well, I don't have a, I don't have a role. And my M&A role needed to be in Chicago because, as you probably know, corporate from a corporate perspective, it should be a headquarters. It's at headquarters. And so I went back to the law department and I said, hey, guys, we left on friendly. I left on friendly terms. And I said, um, I know we don't have any in-house counsel abroad. Would you give me a chance to see whether or not there's an opportunity to to have to be a lawyer in London for Boeing? And as you can imagine, it was a lot of, uh, maybe, I don't know, we don't have enough information. And I said, tell you what, I'll just go out with my husband, if you'll allow me to kind of go back and forth and I'll, 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 just, I'll just do it on my own. Um, and they said, okay, well, why don't you go out and try it and let us know? <laughs> and so- oh, I mean, this is like a second time you created your own job. Yeah, so I, this is beginning, this sounds like a pattern for you. Like opportunities, right? Yeah. And because if there's an if there's an open space, go after it. <laughs> mm. But um, yeah, so I um, moved to London. I didn't have an expatriate package. I said I was going to go and you know, do my diligence, bring back the facts, and you know, so it was a you know I loved it because it was a great opportunity to do a little bit of 
what people call business development. You go out there and you, you talk to people you've never met before and you try to tell them the value and show them the value that you can bring. And um, over the course of about eight to nine months, I was able to demonstrate to the very skeptical sales guys over there that actually having a lawyer in, you know, in the same time zone, in front of their customers, where we can solve problems with respect to their contracts or their financing, it was it was like a revelation to them. They're like, oh my goodness, we can just take you. We can go and see X client with us and we can talk about you know, the engines and the aircraft contracts and the financing. Um, and so there was quickly people saw that there was value to having a lawyer. And then the same thing on the defense side um, where I was able to just do the smallest things. I mean, you know, for a lot of these FCPA purposes, you may you have to submit documents if you're going to give a gift to a government official or to a customer. And there are a lot of procedural aspects mm. that you have to go through. Well, I will tell you that salespeople and, you know, a lot of our um, people who had interface with customers and government officials, they they knew they needed to comply, but oftentimes it gets really complex. And so be having a resource in the same time zone on ground to help them, you know, help shepherd them through the process and explain why it's important was invaluable. So, you know, kind of just very basic things, but they were opportunities to show value as a lawyer. So I went back to the Chicago office. I told them, here's what I found. Here's a business case for you. Here's what, how many lawyers I think you would need. Um, and so they credited me with being one of the founding members of what became the Global Law Affairs Group. It was a practice group where now we have regional councils around the world and country councils in many of the countries where um, the company had business operations. Uh, and so that was, for me, one of my proudest moments um, to just be a founding member and to to have had that opportunity to do that so well it sounds like you were incredibly effective at advocating for the importance of that role and you sold to the salespeople the importance yeah. of having lawyers on the ground which is pretty amazing <laughs> it just is a business case just say yeah. i can give you this much value if you do this <laughs> but, now um i want to let's talk about um your move from boeing to your, to your current company, mm -hmm. where you became a public company GC for the first time. Yes. Now, a lot of people find that jump really challenging. It's almost like a quantum leap. And they almost feel like you have to be a GC to get a GC job. Yes. It, but if that were really true, there wouldn't be any GCs because nobody could ever get started. So, exactly. <laughs> so how did that leap happen for you? And how difficult was that? You know, I think the way to think about this is um, my career at Boeing was fantastic. Um, that company, along with the other two companies, gave me, you know, plenty of opportunities to build experiences. And, um, you know, the, my view was that I was, I had experience in just about every functional area of a lawyer um, and had managed when I was abroad um, with, in London manage like a general counsel, manage the issues, whatever issue it was on the defense side or commercial side, litigation, transactional, and you know, intellectual property, um, all of the different issues that you would see. And so when I was thinking about my career and what I really wanted, um, I said to myself, you know, 
I really want to be a general counsel, but I know I'm not a sitting general counsel. And I was one chair away from, you know, being a direct report to a general counsel. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I think the thing that really motivated me to, to, to do more uh, was the fact that I had a disappointment. Um, you know, because I, ha- I had all of the, I checked the boxes in all of these functional areas and I proven myself as, as a mini general counsel. Um, I uh, was talking to one of my, my key business uh, clients at, at Boeing. He went on to become um, very senior. And he said to me, um, I'm, go- I'm going to put you forward for um, that next role, that role that would report to the general counsel. And I said, great. And I said, what, do, what else do I need to do to make sure that I have the best chance possible? And so he sort of gave me you know, some feedback and I talked to a number of other people just to make sure that I was positioned correctly. And um, all things were looking great. Uh, feedback was coming back great. Uh, and uh, I remember that I went on vacation and I received a phone call from somebody who I had not, would not expect to call me. Uh, and he said, I'm very sorry, but you're not going to get the job. <laughs> and that was it. I was like, what? <laughs> uh, and this person could not explain to me uh, why. Uh, this person explained to me who was going to get it. Um, and the person who did get it, in my view, was not, he didn't, was not even qualified for the role and didn't have all the things that I yeah, I had and it didn't have the sponsorship. Um, and so uh, that that was one of the most devastating moments for me because I had, I had worked um, at the company for more than a decade. I had done everything right. Um, I had positioned myself politically and yet I still faced disappointment. And you had sponsors in the company who spoke on your behalf, you, so you had built relations. You, you had done basically all the things that people tell one yes. to do to kind of position for the next role. Yes. Yeah. And it and just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. And yeah. you can read whatever you want into it. I, you know, I read every, I, <laughs> I spent a lot of time being angry and crying mm. and, you know, racking my brain over what did I not do um, or what was wrong with me. And my husband, who I just adore, I mean, he just said, you got to pull yourself out of this. This isn't about you. This is not about you. You have everything that it takes. What you need to do is you need to build your path to what you really want. And so I, you know, after a lot of, you know, yelling and screaming, (laughs) I just decided I was going to put down on a piece of paper exactly what I wanted and how I was going to go about getting what I wanted. And just thinking more, you know, just thinking, just taking the emotion out of everything and just saying to myself, you know what? Um, I think it's time to leave this, this, I think it's time to leave. I'm not, I'm not going to wait anymore. I, I think I need to move on. Um, Even though I love I've loved the people in the company, but I'm just going to move on. Yeah. Yeah. But it, 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 you know, it, it took a lot of, um, 
organization. Uh, I put a code name around it. I had a project for it. I, I made myself every day. I said, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. I'm going to make these connections. I'm going, so, you know, you think that to make that leap, you really have to want it and you have to be purposeful in your actions. Um, well, being still being true to yourself, right. And knowing, yeah. where, knowing where your shortfalls are. Well, I mean, it sounds like that setback uh, disappointment really motivated you to get organized, but it also sounds like your incredible breadth of experience that you've built up along those years really served you well for the next move. Yeah, yeah. I, well, you know, Larry, I mean, we could we could spend hours talking about what it's like to be a general counsel. It is not the world that I thought. It's um, you know, it's incredibly intense, and um, I think. Well, so 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 on that, tell me what's the hardest thing about the job for for you? Some things obviously will come naturally, but what's been the most the, the biggest challenge in this new role for you? I think it's two things. One, it's letting go and letting your team be accountable for the decisions that they make. Um, and I think number two, it's people. Um, engaging people, inspiring people, developing people. That has been just the challenge that I did not, you know, I think I knew about, I knew I would need to work on it, but that I just did, underestimated the importance of. Well, I mean, I, I got to think that your prior roles, you had some glimmer of that and you, you had some experience, but maybe when you're the GC, it, it sort of leaps up in, into a different scale that you ever had before, right? For the I, first time. Yeah, that's right. Because what you want to make sure is that you have a pipeline of talent and that you are um, you know, just really consciously making sure that people have that path, but also the feedback and when you're you know, creating a team and you're bringing in new people and you're developing people who've been with the company, you have to work through all of those dynamics. And that can be very exhausting. I think on top of all of that, Larry, I think it's the environment that we live in today where um, DE&I has become incredibly important not just for the reasons that we believe, but also because we have generations now that have different expectations and different ways of ex expressing themselves. Uh, and, and, and by DEI, are you referring to diversity, equity, and inclusion? Diversity, yeah. equity, inclusion. Yes, yeah. yes. And and I think the the uh, you know the environment can is highly charged. And I think working through the needs of each team member, because each team member who comes to work brings their entire life story with them. And that's the thing that I think we're starting to appreciate, which is you don't look at, you know, Amy is just the GC. Look at her as someone who's come through, you know, her own journey, as they say, and brings along with her a lot of baggage, a lot of, you know, experiences, a lot of things that will shape how she responds or how she acts. And so that, that is really complex. You are, I think, um, one of the key leaders for your company on the D on, on, on DEI matters. Mm -hmm. um, and does being a woman and being a diverse member of the team make that job easier or harder or just more complicated? I think in some ways it's harder. Um, I think the expectations 
um, are more. Uh, I think that, and that, and that's from really the team members, right, to help advance a lot of their their issues. Um, I also think that uh, you know, if, if you didn't have someone who was passionate about it, just because I'm a woman and you know I'm Asian. You know, if you if you don't have someone leading, you're not going to um, create the kind of culture that you may want. And so, if if my the color of my skin and my gender help, then I'm all for it, right? Yeah. Um, because I think we want to we want I want to leave this place better in a better place than it was before, and I have to make that impact. So, so I I take it upon myself as my you know, my passion, my responsibility. Um, but boy, there's there's a lot of expectation. <laughs> well, and this is well beyond your role as being the senior kind of GC of the company. I mean, this is really you as, as a business leader, as an executive, and as a leader of these important initiatives that goes well beyond your day job, right? And so it, it's, a, it's, it's an add-on to everything else you're expected to do. Yeah, it's... Um... Look, I, lo- I love it, especially when I'm around people. So we'll travel, I'll take a team with me to one of our facilities in some location. And when you just see the people there and the kind of, um, you know, the kind of impact that they're making, which is meaningful to, to, to the company. And you take that energy around inclusion and around diversity and you bring it back to the office it's just, it's just, it's a great feeling, but it's exhausting because one of my, one of my team members said, who went on the trip with me, she said, uh, when I, you know, got in the car to come back, I was exhausted. I fell asleep because you're just pouring so much energy into, you know, into engaging people, uh, and talking about inclusion and the importance of inclusion and, and, understanding what they're doing as best practice. Um, that's, that's the most exhausting, but also the most rewarding part of this job. Yeah. I mean, it must be interesting for you as well. I mean, that you, you've come full circle, you've traveled the world. Now you're back in your hometown, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, where, where you sort of grew up and you're doing all of this great work. Um, and I'm sure your parents' journey, you know, in their early life was also full of challenges. And some of that may resonate with you as you think about these issues in, in this current era that you're yeah. dealing with as a, as a senior business executive, right? I mean, uh, they've come a long way and the issues are, are still there for lots of people. Yeah, um, they are, they never say it. My dad, my dad doesn't really say very much. I mean, I probably have had maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 pages of words our whole lifetime, you know, and like maybe a handful of hugs. Um, but I know he loves me and I know he's proud of me because he, he, you know, he shares with my mother, these articles, look, look at what Amy's doing now. (laughs) I know he's tracking me. I know he's tracking me. Um, but you know, I think that, uh, their love has been unconditional. They, they just said, don't worry about, you know, what we went through. Don't, you just need to make, you know, other people's lives better and and give back to give back to the community give back to society amy this has been an incredible conversation i i love the journey you've been on um we're, we're close to the end I, I do want to ask you one other thing which is that i, I noticed that uh, one of the things that you're working on is the sixth edition of cecilia II's china cookbook <laughs> 
So I, I want to hear, I, and I gather Cecilia too, is your mother. My mother. So, so, so tell me about this project. And I also want to know what your favorite recipe is. Oh, so my mother who, and I'll just share with you, when I was growing up, everybody loved Cecilia. I mean, I was in the shadow of my mother my entire life because Cecilia was the most caring, giving. She made the best egg rolls. She made the best dumplings. She made the best Chinese food in a world, of course, where there was not a lot of Chinese restaurants. Don't, don't forget the chicken feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the intestines. Okay. So, um, you know, she, she was just like this icon uh, in Arkansas. And hmm. Um, you know, my, uh, she decided she was going to write a cookbook and part of it was because, um, she wanted to raise funds for my brother. I have a brother who's disabled and, um, she, you know, she wanted to make sure that she was giving back to community, but also raising funds for, um, um, different groups that support my brother. And, um, so over the years people had, she, I remember she sold this for like $2, like this cookbook for $2 <laughs> and for years she would just keep it at $2. So each edition she would do would be like two bucks. And so finally I said, well, mom, let me help you. Let me, let me, let me, uh, and this was, I think it was just when I was in high school or college or something. I said, well, let me, let me start. Um, editing the cookbook for you, and, and maybe we can make it a little bigger. And and this is applying your early business skills and instincts yeah. already. Yeah. So I was for hours on end, and I don't know if you remember this. Yeah, for hours on end, I would be sitting at a computer at like Joe's um, copier because computers were not readily available, right? And so I'd be at Kinko's and I'd be like typing up the <laughs> typesetting and typing these recipes. And then I go to my mother and I'd say, mother, are you sure this is like half a cup of soy sauce for this tiny little dish? <laughs> she, she's like, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just like half cup, I guess. Yeah. I just throw everything in. <laughs> and so, so there was a process of trying to get all the recipes right. Anyway, roll forward. And we've been editing this cookbook. And um, uh, while I'm on the sixth edition, uh, she has decided that Amy, make this your own. Let's modernize this, make it, you know, uh -huh. your, your our cookbook, right? So, so I'm done with the recipes. I'm now trying to find someone to cook the recipes, test the recipes, and take photos. So if anyone knows that's not you, that's not gonna be you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's that's the cookbook. And in terms of favorite dish, I think my favorite dish are her um are her chai pork chive dumplings the pan fried pork chive dumplings that she hand makes with the with the dough one of my favorites too it always comes back to dumplings i think it always comes back to dumplings <laughs> and i have i have i i can make them so i'm happy about that well amy listen thank you so much for sharing your story with us um and uh this has been great fun I want to congratulate you on your brand new role with the company where you've taken on expanded responsibilities. We didn't have time to get into that, but maybe for another conversation, uh, that'll be a follow-up. And good luck to you in your uh, in your career, in your uh, larger, enlarged senior executive role. And thank you again for your time. Thank you, Larry.